This is Radioactive on your Community Connection 90.9 FM. I'm Nick Burns. I'm here with Laura Jones, who I guess, Laura, you're actually my boss here at the station. But Is um, that news always, to you? <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm just figuring that out after all these years. But on the show tonight, pretty exciting. We want to talk about some predator birds. We want to talk about eagles. And we also want to have a legislative update. And as usual, I think one of the things, and again, I hate to be always so negative, but there's some bills up there that are a bit concerning that I think we need to talk about. So joining us, Eric Peterson with the Utah Investigative Journalism Project and his newest op-ed, most recent op-ed, talking about freedom of the press, talking about transparency in government. And also want to talk with Heidi Matthews, president of the Utah Education Association, about legislation that's making the rounds up on the Hill and it's going to affect you and all our kids a perennial, I think, topic of importance here in the state of Utah. Yeah, let's get started with some rallies and resources because we're going to get into some heavy topics and I thought we might need to uh, have some things to look forward to, Nick. So if folks go to the rallies and resources page at krcl.org, they can find everything I'm about to talk about. But first of all, it is day two of Free Fair February. Folks, if you haven't heard, UTA across its entire service is no ticket necessary for the month of February. Take advantage, Nick. I'm thinking of maybe taking Front Runner up to Ogden to tell you the truth and looking around. That'd be kind of fun. And I, and I think that's amazing. This this discussion comes up now and again. And I'd be inclined to say, if you can make it free in February, why can't you make it free all year? But I realize yes. there are funding issues <laughs> and we have the poor to punish and whatnot. Uh. But maybe this can be the shape of things to mm. come. And if memory serves... This free month <clears throat> comes from the city of Salt Lake, not the legislature, at least in its inception. Well, yes. So. Uh, uh, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall pushed for it, worked with UTA to get it. And they're like, let's try it all February long. It's usually an inversion uh, month. So let's see if we can get folks on public transportation and do something about our air quality. Details in the Rallies and Resources page at krcl.org. We have a couple nonprofits coming up for our legislative update. The Society for Professional Journalists, not to mention the Utah Investigative Journalism project. You'll see how those dovetail in a minute. And the Utah Education Association. Just a couple of nonprofits. And on Thursday, February 10th, it's Nonprofit Day on the Hill all day long with the Utah Nonprofits Association. And it's a great way to get engaged in the process up there. Maybe you're part of a nonprofit. Maybe you want to go and see a bunch of nonprofits in action. Check the link in Rallies and Resources. Something else I wanted you to be aware of, it is Black History Month, and if you're looking for something unique to learn, how about this? Next week on Tuesday, February 8th, the County Library Adult Lecture Series presents The Incredible Life and Legacy of Harriet Tubman, 7 p.m. on their Facebook page. And the person sharing the story is unique as well. Maryland's Gunpowder Falls State Park Ranger Angela Crenshaw, who was the assistant manager of Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park and Visitor Center for more than four years. She'll be sharing the Harriet Tubman story. And then on Tuesday, February 15th, heads up Black, Bold, and Brilliant Hearts and Minds edition with KRCL and the Utah Film Center. And we're going to be having an online conversation about Black-centric films and media by diving into the legendary interview between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni back in 1971. Nick, it's going to be really good, and it'll feature some local writers and poets as well. 
Pretty cool stuff. And then lastly, um, something caught my eye from the Division of Wildlife Services, State of Utah, and that is that February, folks, there is it's a great time to see bald eagles across Utah. So this is where we're getting our bald eagles, our birds of prey. And joining us, we have Billy Fenimore, manager of the Eccles Wildlife Education Center in Farmington in Davis County. Hey, Billy, how you doing? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Nick and I want to know all about this because there's two events this weekend, I think another in mid-February, where kind of guided tours to seeing bald eagles. But there's tons of places you can see bald eagles across Utah this month, right? That's true. And here in Farmington, um, we're having more of a a bald eagle month, not a specific day. So the public's uh, welcome to come out to the Eccles Wildlife Education Center visit with me, some great volunteers that we have that make my life a lot easier here at the center. We have spotting scopes, binoculars that folks can come in, um, borrow, and we can help direct them and share a lot of our knowledge about the bald eagles and where they can go to see them. And a lot of times we can see these majestic birds from the warmth inside our buildings and looking at (laughs) them. So now I'm, I'm curious though, bald eagles, what should people know to to make them? I mean, everybody knows, I think, spotting one, what makes a bald eagle, the white head and so on. But in terms of lifestyle, how do bald eagles differ from other eagles or do they? Um, they, they do. For here in Utah, we have bald eagles and golden eagles. And our bald eagles tend to be associated more around rivers, streams, lakes, reservoirs where our golden eagles are more of a West Desert open grasslands uh, raptor. So our um, bald eagle will enjoy to go after and predate on waterfowl um, and fish versus golden eagles that will be more of uh, rabbits, hares, and so forth like that. So a diet diet issue. Would that be true elsewhere around the country where these eagles live, the, the diet split? True. It, okay. it, it'll be the same across. And for bald, bald eagles, I think many people are used to seeing them, you know, perching on high, lovely, majestic views for these eagles. And of course, sometimes flying as well. Um, in terms of this, these activities and whatnot, will people be seeing them, like you say, from the comfort of a warm building, perhaps? Will people be seeing them flying or perching or, you know, scarfing some dinner? Yeah, they'll be doing a variety of all okay. what you just shared. So you can see them on top of the top, top of pines or out here, out on the ice here on the wetlands. Hmm. So we don't have a lot of trees. Um, everything's more of a grassland. Um, um, we have these compounds of water. So the birds will be um, perched on the, uh, kind of sitting on the ice and they'll kind of be just on the outside edge of some open water so where they're watching the waterfowl and every now and then they'll get up and fly over the flock of ducks just to see maybe which bird isn't doing as well. And then they'll kind of pounce onto that weaker bird and be able to pull it off to the ice and maybe enjoy breakfast. Or I, I thought you were going to say they were ice fishing. Yeah. <laughs> it's the cycle of in a life, ways. Nick. We'll put a link in the show notes tonight to some events happening in southern Utah, central Utah, northeastern Utah. But like Billy said, Farmington Bay all month long. And I understand, Billy, that folks can pick up a collectible Bald Eagle Month pin 
We do. We have pins available now, and we've already had a lot of the public coming in excited. A lot of folks collect them over the years. Some have um, at least the last dozen or so years, and they come in proudly wearing them on their vest or their hat. And then uh, we're excited to share those pins with them. Something folks can do um, to get around the state this cold time of the year and check out the Eagles. And actually, it may be cold for us, but it's warmer where these eagles are flocking to right now for them, I understand. Yeah, so so what happens is a lot of our birds that do this short distance migration to us in the valley, these are birds from up in the Canada, Alaska, Montana, Idaho, where when we get real cold freezes and that open water uh, is frozen over, eagles now can't access the fish, ducks can't access that open water. So what happens is they kind of follow um, down to our latitude where there's a little bit more open water. So we don't have a real bad breeze this year. So we still have some open waters where ducks can still find open water, fish can be accessed, and that's why the eagles enjoy it here with us. Well, Billy, thanks so much for giving us some time uh, from the Eccles Wildlife Education Center at Farmington Bay. What's the address up there, and when are you open and having these kind of guided conversations, too? Well, we are open Tuesday through that Saturday, 9.30 to 4.30, and our address is 1157 South Waterfowl Way, and we're here in Farmington. I love it, Waterfowl Way. Thanks, Billy. We appreciate your time. <laughs> hey, thank you for having me. All Very right, cool. Nick, we'll put all that in the show notes. I'm going to go check that out. I think the pin will um, be an incentive to get there. Oh. <laughs> and I think people forget. I mean, people are used to seeing eagles far away perched up on a on a tree or a branch or flying high. I think people forget how amazingly huge these birds are. Yeah, exactly. It's a great opportunity it's, this month. So that yeah. is Rallies and Resources, and I'm excited for this legislative update because we're talking freedom of the press. We're talking about who controls education with your guests. Go for it. So, Eric Peterson, let's bring you in here first. You're on the board um, with the Utah Headliners chapter, the Society of Professional Journalists here in Utah. You also head up the Utah Investigative Journalism Project, and you've just recently written an op-ed um, in, I guess, as in your role as president as well as with the Investigative Journalism Project. So tell me a little bit about what brought you to this op-ed piece that you've written? What's going on up on the Hill? Well, there's uh, there's some real concern we have about legislation that's being introduced by Representative Wilcox. Um, it has to do with a document called a Garrity Statement. And that's that's kind of a reference. I don't think it's very common knowledge, but it's a very important document. It makes reference to a type of statement that an officer gives when they are... Uh, kind of when there's an in internal investigation about a use of force, right? Uh, Garrity refers to a Supreme Court decision kind of governing these things, you know, and this decision said, you know, police officers can't be required, you know, they can't be made to incriminate themselves like anybody else, but, you know, um, they, they are required to, you know, talk internally with their, you know, superiors about a use of force um, and, and discuss what happened really to see if things went by the book or not. Um, what's really unique about the Garrity statements is that they are not something that can be used against a police officer in court. So it's a real opportunity to just talk honestly and candidly about something that happened, you know, and, and kind of have this discussion about, you know, did our department policy work or not? 
um, in this situation. Um, and normally these records have always been public, but we're getting some pushback now uh, this year at the legislature. They're trying to make these records private, uh, block access to them from the public and the press. Um, and it's 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 frankly a, a terrible idea. Um, it's it's the kind of document that is really win-win for everyone. I mean, having public accountability to find out if an officer was following their own department's policies or not um, helps improve outcomes for police. And there's no way that that officer can actually be criminally held liable for what they say in this document. So they're not going to be punished because they made a mistake on the job. Um, it's, it's really just a, a win for everyone in, involved as long as these records remain public. And there is a move afoot on the Hill right now to, to change that, to shield them from view. And that's something we're very concerned about. Yeah, and just to be clear, Garrity uh, versus New Jersey from quite a while ago in the Supreme Court that an officer could be compelled to talk internally, but it can't be used in a criminal prosecution or investigation, same as I guess anyone can't, you know, anyone has Fifth Amendment rights, if you will. But the idea is we want to hide all these records. Um, is this going on elsewhere or do you think this is peculiarly Utah? Now, for what I understand, about like half the states in the country <laughs> consider these public records. Um, and, you know, I know the Salt Lake Tribune has really been following this issue and they've made a lot of these Garrity requests. Um, and, you know, from dozens of agencies in the state, they had no problem turning them over. But a few have. Um, and I know I believe they're actually fighting that matter in court. So there's a legal battle in the court going on. And at the same time, legislature, the legislature is trying to kind of close access, you know, uh, you know, at the Capitol uh, to these records. Prospects, do you, I mean, obviously all of, all of you all in the media and the Society of Professional Journalists is going to come out against this. Um, chances you think it'll pass? Uh, it's going to be a tough one. Um, mm. I, I think there's a lot of, you know, the, uh, I think the legislature is positioning this as a, a pro-police uh, bill. Uh, you know, they feel like they, I think they're trying to to argue that you know they they don't want to embarrass officers um, by having this information made publicly available. Our position is that more transparency is always going to improve outcomes, um, and so it's it's not a question of press versus the police. We think the police are going to be the most served by having more accountability in this process, especially when it means no real you know negative consequences for the officer if they made a mistake. They're not going to get in trouble for it. Um, right. I, I presume the, the argument to keep these secret would be, even though the officer can't be prosecuted for what they say, there would be a court of public opinion. Um, and one issue that comes to my mind is how we've seen law enforcement officers who get in trouble in one district, you know, just quit and get hired in another district um, without any change in their behavior necessarily. And it seems to me, since police officers in effect work for us, I agree with you, right? Making this stuff public ought to make everyone better. <laughs> but yeah. as you say, there's a, as you imply, I guess I should say, Eric, there's a, there is this huge move that anything the police want, they should get, and they're going to watch out for us and we should just trust them um, and let them operate behind closed doors. Um, and that's a little frightening, I think. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, when you talk about like, you know, like a court of public opinion, I mean, and it's really just in the public understanding what's going on, um, oh. you know, and being a part of the process um, and, you know, being able to, you know, give accurate input by knowing all the details about these types of things. Um, so that, I mean, that is important. Um just for instilling faith in these kinds of public processes. And this is actually uh, related to another issue that's coming up at the legislature. Um, only just heard about it today and we're very concerned about it as well, uh, is that there is a move afoot. I don't think this legislation has been released yet, but there is a move afoot that's similar in the sense that <clears throat> there is a, uh, an effort to make records of investigations into like public officials. Um, where the agency finds no wrongdoing, uh, closing off those records and making them private that can't be accessed. And obviously there's a huge concern there if a government agency investigates one of its own, says <laughs> nothing to see here, and by the way, you can't have these records. You just have to trust us. Again, it's the same problem going on with this Garrity legislation, a very strong feeling from government saying, public, you don't need to know about this. You uh, know? Nothing to see here. Yeah. What do you make of of uh, the recent uh, piece we saw in the Trib about closing off access, literally closing off access to journalists during the session to reach senators? That seems part and parcel of this. Nothing to see here. Uh, that's concerning. That it uh, it definitely feels like a double standard there. Um, you know, uh, that, you know, the legislature would essentially abandon all of its kind of COVID protocols, except when it comes to journalists. Um, you know, I'm not sure why they're so afraid of journalists. Um, it is troubling. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely not in favor of that. You know, again, though, like, I, I tend to feel like my, my hope is that that is really kind of a temporary thing, the session. Um, I believe there are efforts being made to kind of work that out. Um, but some of this other legislation, Garrity, you know, making investigation reports, you know, not public. I mean, these are attempts to make permanent changes at blocking access, not just for journalists, but for the public right. to the public. vital information. Exactly. Do you see a huge um, pressure from, you know, perhaps bot groups or right wing groups to advocate on these issues? We always tell listeners, contact your elected officials. But sometimes I feel like when me, myself, and I as an individual is up against a bot, it's hard to get the numbers. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know about, about that okay. aspect of things. I do know that with the legislature, they are very responsive to people reaching out to them. Um, yeah. You know, there's a, many people don't take the trouble, uh, make, you know, don't go to the effort to reach out to their legislators or to other legislators that's not representing them, but they want to tell them. Um, you know, and I think that I think you know lawmakers are responsive to that feedback. You know, they yeah. listen to that uh, more than people that just complain and uh, you know say that there's nothing to be done and move on. Um, it I think it's always useful to to make your voice heard in any form you can. Show up, send emails, call their offices. Uh, you know, the legislature has a very good website, makes it easy to get in touch with these folks. So. You can go right on and, and find immediately who your legislator is and reach out to them and let them know you're upset. And you can find other legislators and reach out to them about anything they're working on. 
Eric Peterson, thank you. I, I appreciate you ending on the positive. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to be negative these days, but thank you for that positive. Eric Peterson is the board president of the Utah Headliners chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists, also heads up the Utah Investigative Journalism Project. Eric, hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks so much. This is Radioactive on your community connection, 90.9 FM. Next, get a legislative update with Heidi Matthews. Heidi, hi. Hi. Thank you for thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So you have a long history as uh, a middle school media and social studies teacher, I believe. So oh, I was high school English for a number of years, and then I was in a junior high library for the last 16 before now five and a half as the uh, president of the Utah Education Association. Right. President UEA now. I just wanted to make sure people know uh, that you did used to actually work with middle schoolers, a thankless job if ever there was one for some <laughs> folks. Uh, <but> <laughs> I, people I actually love, love it. No, people, people I know who teach middle school that's the only age group they ever wanted to work with. So it's, I think that's amazing. It's a special breed for sure. Yeah. But we have you here today not to discuss tweens, which I think I could talk about at length, but <laughs> to talk about what's going up on the Hill. And as usual, it seems to me there are some troubling issues happening. I think listeners, our, our listeners know all about critical race theory and all of this national hubbub and and ginning up of hate, uh, even though it's not something that's taught. But it seems to me that this kind of fever over book burnings, I'll say literally, has really changed. Rather than, you know, a few parents calling up a teacher or calling up a principal, we now see our elected officials actively involved. And I wonder, how's that changed what, what your work involves? I don't know if it's changed. And I also okay. want to... to to clarify, it certainly is intensified, but I want to okay. clarify, you, know, you said we're not here to talk about tweens. I think we are exactly here to talk about tweens and and our younger children and our older children and, and all of society that wants the very best for them. And, and that's what we do as the Utah Education Association is we are committed to the promise of public education for all of our students and what is going to bring that to, to bear. And when we're talking about policy, when we're talking about legislation, when we're talking about funding, that all occurs during the legislation, our lens is looking at how it is going to ultimately bring about that promise for each and every student. Oh, good. Thank you for that. And I think what perhaps legislatures overlook in, the, in, their, <clears throat> in their fever to bang a drum is I think most middle schoolers and high schoolers are smarter than we give them credit for <laughs> when it comes to books. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I would say some of the things that you just brought up, um, that, that there is uh, not as much, uh, how do I say, I think there's a huge amount of awareness of the context that we're in right now, that this legislation that is being proposed, you know, our context coming into the legislation this year was like what you're talking about, many of these organized groups throughout the nation conjuring up a, 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 a critical race theory that really, uh, you know, questioned the professional integrity of our, of our educators, put a chilling factor on um, important, important discussions of race and teaching accurate history. We're seeing uh, books being challenged and banned simply because they make 
people uncomfortable. And isn't it uh, kind of strange that most of the books that are being banned are from authors of color or LGBTQ? Um, and I think that this context that we came in with um, really laid the foundation for, for us being very leery of, mm. of the legislation. And then uh, unsurprising, we were hit day one with, uh, of the legislative session with um, legislation about uh, local schools' ability to follow the directives of medical health experts. Um, oh. and, then, and then removal of, of mitigation uh, mitigation processes that help us with with managing the virus and and then we're, we're seeing you know into week two all, uh, sorts of um, so-called trans transparency bills that uh, we question the transparency of their their reasoning and and then now this week we have the hint of vouchers or vouchers by any other name and we also have a have a bill that puts up barriers for the important relationship between our parents and, and our teachers. So yeah, it's been, it's, it's been a lot. It's probably more exhausting than teaching high school all day. Um, do, do our elected officials, have they ever come and like visited your classroom? And because I wonder all this talk about, we're going to ban this, or we're going to do that, or we're going to do this other in your experience, do the elected officials running these bills, I think of Senator Johnson, who's running SB 157, and Senator Cullimore is the one behind what might be this new vouchers bill. Have they ever like just kind of maybe, you know, ask teachers, how is it you teach race relations or Jim Crow laws or civil rights? Do they even have any knowledge of what actually goes on? I... I... I think we have a number of our legislators who do go into the classrooms. Okay. In terms of, you know, the the asking, I think that's where things get a little bit more layered and, and nuanced. As the Professional Association of Educators throughout the state of Utah, we have over 18,000 members. When we come to a position on something, it's with great input and vetting and, 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 and an approval process of our of our members or delegates of our members. And when we have legislation that is, is taking their cues from other organizations throughout the, throughout the country um, and not the, the realities of the experiences of our educators, not asking the questions of, you know, what does this really look like um, when it's implemented and how does it affect our kids? How does it affect our profession? How does it affect you personally? Because we know that the context that you're living in right now, our, our people who are working in our schools, this has been really tough. Yeah. And it just seems to get heaped on. Uh, and I think of maybe this is sometimes more true in the national press than the local press, but you know, you as the, the head of the, um, I'll use the word union. I don't know if union's quite the right word for the teachers group here in Utah, but, but I see this nationally that too often when it comes to labor and management, you know, the union demands this, but management offers. Um, and I see a lot of people, especially in the school choice, the privatization movement, the, the pro uh, charter movement, often want to blame unions for everything that's wrong with schools. And 
I think it's unfortunate because when media wants to hear about teachers, well, they'll call the union because you are the teachers. And I wonder, does that get in the way of messaging here? If you go up on the hill and you're my, oh my God, here's Heidi Matthews again. Um, does that help or hinder here, I wonder, to be associated with what some people consider a teacher's union? Um, I have felt nothing but um, the authority of the 18,000 plus members okay. behind me when I when I walked to the hill and have very much appreciated that that level of respect. Um, but, but I think the, it's do the but do the elected officials just see, oh, my God, here's another union person making a demand. Oh, I think oftentimes when that's convenient, <laughs> it, 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 you know, ab absolutely. And and uh, we we work very hard to um, to clarify our role and bring educators who are in the classroom to to the forefront. Um, as the elected leader, I I I am an educator. I've been yeah. one for over over thirty years, and um, that that brings some credibility for sure, especially when. You know, when these decisions are being made, our, our people are are in class um, and can't necessarily bring that bring that to to the forefront. Um, that said, I understand what you're saying about being disregarded simply because of our professional association, our union label that has been um, one of the attacks, one of the convenient yeah. attacks. I think not just in education, but but across the board. Oh yeah, I think for unions everywhere, that's a cheap it's a cheap shot, so to speak. Um, I know we only have a few minutes more, and I wanted to know what you make of our governor recently saying, gee, if you're a state employee, just go be a substitute. And we've seen some local districts say, oh, parents, come and be a sub. Um, I realize we're all under dire circumstances, and we do have a lot of people out ill. There is a huge need for substitutes. Some districts have increased wages for substitutes, but I wonder you know, as a teacher myself, is that kind of offensive to you? Like anybody could just go be a sub? One of the main messages that we have been trying to bring in this legislative session is what we need to do now in this crisis that we're in, um, in our schools to, 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 uh, to stave off it, every, you know, anything that we can and, and, and make the learning for our students the best possible that, that we can. And that means taking care of our educators. But in everything that we do, we can't just do it for the, for the, the current crisis. We've got to be looking for its impact on the future. So while we very much appreciate the sentiment of the, the governor's executive order allowing for the public school or public employees to, to have some time supporting our students and supporting our educators in our public schools. We really need to not just leave it at that. We have to be looking long-term at the root causes of how we got into this in the first place. And, uh, you know, we had a teacher shortage before the pandemic. We had educator exodus before the pandemic. Let's look at those conditions. And yes, they do have to do with salary, but that's not it. It's time, it's workload, it's autonomy, it's professional integrity and, and trust. And it's, it's um, being impeded by these repeated 
bills that are putting forward that that question that that place more burden on that that erodes that trust at a time when when we just can't afford it we have to be looking for all ways that we can all the many ways that we can support our people so that they are educators they can be the best they can be for their students Ah, well said because it does seem sadly unfortunately that the legislature often is working directly against uh, teachers. Um, do other red states in our neck of the woods here in the Intermountain West, are other red states facing the kind of teacher exodus and shortages that Utah faces? Yes. And, and okay. it's, it's not, it, it, it's, 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 it's nationwide. Um, it's not just in, in red states, although we do see some, uh, more of an increase in, in our in, in states, particularly where we are able to bring in um, educators who have gone through different ways of getting into the classroom that who aren't professionally trained to come in. Then, and thank goodness they are. But, but when mm. we have people who are learning on the job, that it's the, the, the turnover is is considerable. And and I would say back to one of the things you said about um, the intentions of the legislature. I think regardless of the intention, um, it's it's the impact that we need to be looking at and, and the impact on those who are making things happen in our schools for our students. And that is our professional educators. We don't want to impact the important relationships that they have with parents. Um, we don't want to get in the way of, of um, any impeding any resources or supports that they need to be successful. I mean, well said, the, discussing the impacts, because I, I sometimes wonder this year, you know, a lot of people really need a soapbox up on the hill to not be out you know, right flanked in the primary. It is an election year. So there's going to be perhaps a bit more bang drumming, a drum banging. I got that backwards. Um, and again, the right seems very ascendant and very powerful, at least in this state. But like you say, it isn't only here. But I believe we are now, last time I read, we are 49th in per pupil funding instead of 50th. We've we've come up a notch. You know, like, yay, we, we passed Idaho last year. <laughs> um, it is an important trajectory that we don't want to um, belittle uh, that that in the last few years, there has been such significant investments from our legislature and our district that that the, the move is significant and we want to keep it going. Um, there was a lot of investments. There were a lot of investments from our legislature, as well as the different COVID resources that really were able to get more counselors into our schools, um, more, more library media people, more um, aides and, and our ESPs and increase those wages of all school employees. It's so, so very important. And um, we need to make sure that they can keep going. Yeah, the concern would be that'll be one-time money, right? And the, the pandemic will go away and the nurses will evaporate and there won't be money for counselors or one counselor will have to serve five schools or whatever it might be. So I, I, hope, I hope the pressure can stay on. Um, what, what beyond addressing funding issues beyond the lack of payment, when it comes to the exodus that we see, what would you like to see the legislature doing? What could the legislature do aside from getting off your backs and micromanaging every single teacher in every single classroom? What would you like to see the legislature doing to support teachers? And I mean that beyond a pay raise. 
So we at the Utah Education Association have prioritized, of course, the, the, the WPU. And, and I understand that you, you're wanting to say, you know, what can you do that's not funding? But unfortunately, so many of the things that, that create the time and the support do, do require that funding, which is why we have a, a pretty significant um, ask for a, a WPU increase, which is uh, a 5% beyond wow. what the okay. inflationary factor is. And that inflationary factor is built into the base budget. That was a great celebration and uh, a good collaborative effort there. We have also asked for um, a, a very large chunk of, of funds from the one-time monies to address time that our educators are having to, to put in during this pandemic. And, and it's what we hear over and over across the state. I don't, I, I'm, there's no sub. Um, so I have to cover for my colleague down the hall, which means I can't plan during my planning period or grade. And so then that's coming home and it's this perpetuating cycle. And while we, we know we can't, advocate for um, more hours in the day, we can at least respect that time um, with, with compensation for educator-directed, flexible time. And, you know, it might mean the difference between not having to have that second job or at least having that professional respect and recognition of the heaping workload that our educators are shouldering. And I think you raise a really good point that when we talk about funding from the state level, it's not just the paycheck, but it's the resources, it's the help, it's the number of students in the classroom. There are many ways I think we could spend a whole bunch more money. The last couple of minutes we have with you, Heidi, you do have a UEA legislative team that does mm -hmm. a Zoom. I think that's each Thursday at 4.30. We do. Yeah. Capital Insights. And how, how can folks get in on that? Well, it is designed for our the members of the, the Utah Education Association, and but all the information about it is on under the dome, and that is at myuea.org. In addition to the, the Capital Insights, there's a there's a sign up if you want to be an activist, okay. education activist, and receive updates. You can see our legislative priorities for the year. There's also a tracking sheet that shows uh, our the UEA positions on certain bills, what we highlight, who our staff, uh, our ledge team contacts are on that. Great information on under the dome at myuea.org. And I just want to give a shout out to everybody. You don't have to have kids in school. I know if you do have kids in school, education is probably extra important. But if you don't have kids in school, you know, having the kids next door well-educated impacts your life too. So I'd encourage everybody to check out these resources. Um, Thank you. That's my little soapbox for the I day. Appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it. Heidi Matthews, president of the Utah Education Association. Thank you for all you do. Um, I think it's wonderful. Um, and I think teachers are wonderful, but then I'm a little biased because I teach at the college level. But Heidi, thanks for taking time. Thank you so much. Appreciate your support and getting these important conversations out there. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm Nick Burns. This is Radioactive. When we come back, The Multi, a short film created by a majority deaf cast and crew, written, produced, and starring Natasha Ophili, a deaf Black actor. The story's inspiration came from her experiences with mental health and challenges faced by women 
of color. The multi now showing its slam dance this week, and it's all on Radioactive on your Community Connection KRCL. Keep it tuned. We'll be right back. Send your Valentine a love note on the radio. Valentine's Day is Monday, February 14th, and we're playing Cupid with KRCL Love Notes. Call the Love Note hotline and leave a message or shout out for that special person or even a local organization. Call 801-903-1279 to leave your love note. Then tune in KRCL Monday, February 14th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. to hear love songs, breakup songs, makeup songs, and listener love notes on air. Find the number and details at krcl.org. One in four Utahns has a criminal record. February 10th marks the beginning of automatic record clearance in Utah. If you or someone you know needs help with the expungement process, visit cleanslateutah.org, a new nonprofit working to ensure that Utahns don't miss out on opportunities because of their past. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up at 7, Democracy Now! Mixtape at 8, Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30, and Get Your Root Awakening with Liz at 3. Our entire programming lineup can be found online at krcl.org. And if you click the programming tab, well, you can listen on demand to the last two weeks of any show. Listen on demand, made possible by listeners like you folks. Still to come, Morgan Keller and Salam Dance. But first, Eric Peterson from the Society for Professional Journalists rung me up after we recorded the first half of the show and said, hey, I want to clarify my stance on that rule change for media access in the Senate on Utah's Capitol Hill. Here's that conversation. So, Eric, welcome back. What did you want to add? Well, yeah, thanks for bringing me back. I mean, this is actually pretty kind of uh, fast, uh, changing kind of situation. You know, when I first been, uh, kind of alerted about this, uh, access issue, um, indications where it was more temporary, more having to do with COVID safety protocol, still kind of questionable. Uh, but now we're seeing that, yeah, this is a, this is a resolution that's attempting to make, you know, a real permanent change here that, uh, really kind of restricts access to the Senate floor, you know, committee rooms, um, you know, requiring, you know, essentially that media has to get permission to kind of come out into these areas where we've always been able to go before, uh, you know, kind of hallways where, you know, important conversations can happen or it's easy to kind of like, you know, grab a legislator, you know, who's busy, but, you know, get him for a few seconds to follow up on something, get clarification on something. Um, and now that's all being restricted. And we're, we're pretty concerned about that with the Society of Professional Journalists. Um, we're hoping that this is something we can hammer out a better solution. We've actually been kind of tinkering with the idea of, you know, having some kind of, you know, association um, that journalists can kind of you know, kind of uh, mediate problems if any problems come up, you know, within ourselves to kind of make sure everything's working smoothly with, you know, the the, the Capitol press corps, as it were, and legislators. Um, but this proposal as it stands, I mean, this seems just like, uh, a, you know, a clear blocking to access that we've had, you know, for years and years, for as long as I can remember. 
you might otherwise have been able, well, previously you've been able just to walk up in these non-public areas because that's the way it's worked and ask a lawmaker for a quote or comment or background on an issue. Now you'd have to go through, I don't know how many layers of gatekeepers if this were to be approved. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, in the idea that you would like have, you know, like one senator take you out there and then you have to leave as soon as you're done talking to them. Like it's it's a very restricted, you know, not just access, but, you know, kind of free exchange of information, you know, um, access, um, access like that. I mean, it, it goes a long ways to like helping us do our job and helping communicate what's going on at the Hill to the public at large. Well, and you are a proxy for the public. And I think that's what I want to kind of get across here, Eric, to our listeners, is that when they strong arm the press, they're strong arming the public. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is not, you know, it's 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 easy sometimes for people, you know, you know, whatever your view of the media is to think of, you know, it is this kind of separate class, you know, uh, of individuals. I mean, really, we're just trying to figure out what's going on and present that to the public. We're just trying to be the eyes and ears for the public to understand what's going on, you know, uh, especially at the legislature where, you know, in this crazy month and a half, a whole new, you know, batch of laws governing our, you know, day-to-day existence in Utah is, is, is being crafted, is being formulated, is being discussed. And, you know, we want to be able to get that information, you know, as accurately as possible and get it out to everyone um, as best we can. And again, this rule change, restricting media access as our elected representatives are conducting the people's business in the people's house. Can you tell them a little worked up? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I have that same problem when I start thinking about, okay, it's public business and you're restricting access, you know, to you know, people working on behalf of the public in this. Yeah, it's uh, it, it can be very frustrating, or, but we're hopeful that, you know, there's still time to like kind of work out some kind of compromise. It's works for everybody. Thanks, Eric. Happy to have you back to do that quick clarification. Yeah, thank you. Eric Peterson of the Society for Professional Journalists. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the bills he's concerned about when it comes to freedom of the press in Utah. And now a conversation conducted by Morgan Keller, a new team member here at KRCL who has a film background, as well as being part of our development team. I asked her to look at a short film called The Multi, showing this week as part of Slam Dance. Again, check tonight's show notes for a link to the festival to pick up your pass and start watching all those films. Let's dive into this conversation that Morgan had with filmmaker Natasha Ophili. She drew upon her own experience as a black deaf woman to create this film with a majority cast and crew that was deaf as well. Here we go. Carrie and Natasha, would you both mind introducing yourselves? Hi, my name is Natasha Ophili, and my name sign looks like this, Natasha. And I'm from Los Angeles. I am the producer and creator and actor um, on the multi. And Carrie, would you mind also introducing yourself? Sure. (laughs) I'm Carrie Aiken, and I'm the sign language interpreter. Wonderful. Um, so why don't we get this started? Natasha, just tell us a little bit about your film. Wow. <laughs> uh, we're just jumping right in. Dang. Okay. So uh, this film is about a Black deaf woman who is going through some trauma, um, some isolation, an isolated world uh, during the pandemic. And she's been by herself her whole life, she's really felt 
isolated her whole life and never has really been able to confront the trauma that she's experienced in her past. And so she's kind of reached a breaking point where she's having to confront herself and really uh, confront the inner pieces of herself. And ironically, the inner self is trying to help her. So yeah, I wanted to share this story to the world. It is a mental health journey and mental health is very important for us to talk about. And I've realized there are people that aren't talking about it. Um, I went through therapy for many years and I have no shame talking about my mental health and the journey that I've been on. And I think it's inspirational. It's an inspirational feeling. And I've noticed that people have it. So I wanted to provide a healthy space for people to feel like it's okay to feel vulnerable. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel upset. And it's important to allow yourself to feel those things and also talk about it. In the film, you, you know, it seems like isolation is a big part of what leads to the character's kind of breaking point. But from what I read, it sounds like you actually started your company, Niovision, Niovision, uh, while in isolation. So I'm curious how you managed to come out of this, what's really a mental health crisis with everyone in quarantine, stronger with a film in Sundance with a company to call your own. Yeah. I was not expecting for us to form our own production company. I mean... It had kind of been in the back of my mind for many years, uh, but with this film, I really decided to push myself to make my own production company. And it was really funny because during the pandemic, I thought, you know, we'll just wait. And, you know, just started twiddling my thumbs, waiting for Hollywood. And I was like, why, why are we waiting? So I went ahead, you know, got to work. And it's kind of a blessing in disguise because... I created this beautiful story and we started our own production company and I just trusted myself to take that big leap and to just do it. <laughs> and now because of that, I mean, there's been so much reactions and responses and everything has been so great. And I feel so honored to be able to make my own production company. And then also to have such a great team behind me and supporting me and bringing their expertise and everyone brought their A game to this film. Yeah, I read that it was a hybrid crew, which I'm sure in the post-COVID world is going to get a lot more normal, but it seems like kind of trailblazing territory at the moment. So how did you guys, what kind of challenges came with having a hybrid crew? It's really funny because this is the first time I think it's ever been done having this type of hybrid crew with having so many devices on set and we had iPads and laptops and then we had interpreters in person. We didn't know what to expect. Um, and really the whole thing, I mean, it's funny to say no challenges <laughs> because everyone was so patient. Everyone was so open-minded and open-hearted and everyone was able to work together as a team and we were in a new environment. It was effective. And I mean, it can be done. It can be done. And like you just mentioned for the future, I think that this is going to be a new way to have a hybrid set, especially with deaf actors, uh, disabled actors, having interpreters on screens or bringing in a wheelchair crew. I mean, people who, are in wheelchairs can work as directors remotely. And the DP that we had, his name is Cooper Ulrich. And 
he never worked with a deaf crew before ever. And he was very receptive to the whole thing. And after we finished shooting, he, he said, I need to, I need to sit down. I need a minute to, to just process my thoughts. And he met with me and he said, you know, this is one of the best sets I've ever worked on. I want to work with you again, Natasha. And that's a big win. That's a big win because then he can then, you know, share his experience with others as well. Wow. That's incredible that you guys made it work so well. Yes. Yes, definitely. (laughs) It is. It's very interesting, (laughs) but I loved it. I loved it. And, um, there was another room where they were setting up the new set and I was off on a different room and I could just see the communication that was happening on the laptop. I didn't have to be in that same room, you know? And so if the director needed to speak with me, um, we could just have that communication via zoom while they were in the other room. So then everyone kind of has access to communication, whether they're deaf or whether they're hearing, everyone still has access to it. So it was a really cool experience. In the movie, you managed to create such a, unique and vivid world with the sound and the sound design, you know, between the score and those brief but really powerful moments of dialogue, you really paint a vivid picture about what it's like in your world. And I'm curious how you and your team kind of approached that sound design and, you know, what you wanted to create with it. Yeah, I wanted to give a mix of everything with the sound, a healthy balance. And so with the dialogue, I wanted the audience to be able to see dialogue without sound, no voiceover. I wanted them to really live and breathe what that experience felt like. And it's essentially up to the audience. Um, But with the sound design, yeah, the same thing. I kind of want to just sprinkle in little bits of, you know, when she starts talking, you kind of feel that a little bit. When she becomes upset, you feel that a little bit. No one really expects her to scream at the end, which is kind of shocking. And so, um, yes. And so then with the score, um, that person had done a score for another film that I acted in. Um, that person's name is Matthew um, Pustini. Carrie might be saying it wrong. Um, and it was crazy that we had a score in, you know, deaf people can help work on scores. And so I had had some inspiration that I could share that I shared with Matthew and he kind of worked on it and came up with this new score and he sent it over to me and I tried to listen to it as best as I could. And I said, no, it's still lacking something. I need some bass, <laughs> you know, as, de- as a deaf person and a lot of deaf person, we do need some bass. And so, you know, I had come, I said, Matthew, I said, Hey, we need some sort of bass. And he then recreated it and he said, thank you for the feedback. It ended up being a good addition. So I was like, okay, okay. So we really helped each other to really put that score together. And I really feel like he gets the essence of the story. And that's important when you hire someone and you're working together that they get the story and that they're invited in. And it really was a beautiful collaboration with the sound design and the ADR and the score. Yeah, it came together. What kind of guidance did you give him? Was it more mood, feeling? What kind of what kind of stuff did you, you know, ask from him? So because I've listened to some of his stuff, and so I was able to feel I, I felt like it aligned with a lot of the things that I liked. Um, he has his own band um, called Makeup and Vanity Set. 
And so I've listened to some of his stuff and you can kind of feel it. And it really did align with multi. And so I had mentioned, you know, hey, I want something like what you already do, but I also want it to have its own unique feel. And when Matthew had watched the film, he was like, okay, 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 this is what I can do for you. And he had kind of explained it to me. And he said, we can do this silent and this. And really we, we were on the same page and it was a beautiful process. Did he also do not just the, the score, but the sound mixing as well? Cause I noticed that there are subtle moments where you can hear things like the paper, for instance, ripping was a moment where I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, that's another sound that really kind of comes through the void. Um, so I was impressed with not just the score, but also the sound design in that way. Okay, so he did the score. And then the other person who was working on sound design was, one second for the interpreter, Michael Bates. And he's based in London. He is incredible. And again, it's important to work with. So like when I watched the film and I try to put some headphones in, you know, I, I realized at first it was missing the paper tear. And I said, no, that's really important. We have to have the sound of the paper tearing in there. So he's like, okay, okay. So we added that in there. Um, there were little elements in the film that I feel like were more impactful with sound and it does make a big difference. And we had, it had to be intentional with purpose. Well, I think you definitely nailed that. So you worked really hard to bridge your characters and your non-hearing world to the hearing world uh, in a really unique way with the sound design. Um, I'm curious, I guess, just what, what that bridge means to you. What kind of, what, what kind of, why that was important to you? I think because yes, I am a deaf person and I've been deaf since I was 18 months old but my world is still an overlap of both. Um, my mom, and I'm so thankful to my mom, she allowed me to be who I am as a person. And there was no shame for me being deaf. And it was my identity in a hearing world. And, um, but there's shared spaces. I mean, there's spaces where I can be fully myself as a deaf person in a hearing world. They can both happen at the same time. And with that, having that like perspective, I think that that allows people to be more open and less scared. Like deaf people are aliens. And so it's nice to be able to bridge those together. And I can come to your world and you can come to mine. And then there's a place we can meet halfway. And with my experiences, I've always been open with myself. I've been open with all the hearing people that I encounter and not just teaching them, but allowing them to also be open and seeing like, oh, this is Natasha. And I'm first Natasha when you meet me. And then deaf, my deaf identity comes after. And so I just wanted to give little sprinkles of experiences for hearing people to you know, have silence and have sound and just the whole journey, you know? Well, I think you definitely nailed it <laughs> again. Uh, I'm curious because I know with your company, Naya Vision, I read that your mission is to create more stories of this caliber, more diverse stories that people don't get to see. I'd love to hear a little bit about just how you plan to kind of achieve that goal and what your hopes for this company are. My hopes for the company are I want it to become a big company um, like um, 
like Brad Pitt's uh, company. Um, he's got a production company and I want it to be of, I like those formats, you know, they're very selective. They want specific stories to produce. I, I want to have that same thing. I want to be a main, I want to be in the mainstream world. And I also love working with other production companies or I want to network to expand and I want to collaborate and I want to be able to learn from other people. I want to be successful and NeoVision, I believe has a big vision or has a big future ahead. I want to continue to invest and expand and bring in different people and bring in other people's expertise and their perspectives. I'm very, I'm just really looking forward to <laughs> all of it. And I just see it all happening. Filmmaker Natasha O'Feely in conversation with KRCL's own Morgan Keller about Natasha's short, The Multi, now screening during Slam Dance, going on through February 6th. And a thank you to the sign language interpreter for that interview, Carrie Aiken. If you're looking for an organization or a film that you heard about in tonight's show, you can find details in the show notes posted online now at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones, and on behalf of Nick Burns and everyone at KRCL, thank you for listening. Thank you for plugging into your community during Radioactive, only on KRCL. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.